once again, dear listeners, and thank you for joining us here at the Republic Broadcasting Network. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy, your host for the next one hour, and you are listening to Datum Line. Today's date, July 14, 2013. In our last Datum Line broadcast entitled Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 15, we introduced a few brief extracts from the Congressional Debates of 1862 that led to the first issuance of United States notes, or Lincoln Greenbacks, the first notes under the Constitutional Republic to bear the impress of legal tender. It was this legal tender feature that Congress used to force the American people to accept a promise to pay money, as if it were gold or silver coin, dollar for dollar. The extracts from those debates were taken from Pieces of Eight, Volume 1, published in 2002 by Edwin Vieira, quoting the Congressional Globe of 1862. Those debates and resulting legal tender acts occurred 75 years after the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia back in 1787, which imposed a twofold prohibition against all bills of credit. The first prohibition was aimed at and ratified by the states, which were expressly denied the power to coin money or emit bills of credit or to make anything but gold and silver coin a tender and payment of debts. This found at Article 1, Section 10, Paragraph 1. The second prohibition, however, was by way of an omission at Article 1, Section 8, and Paragraph 5, where the power to emit bills of credit by Congress was struck from the constitutional draft on a vote of 9 to 2. Whatever was struck from the constitutional draft at the Philadelphia Convention is not of essential concern, however, since the federal constitution is one of expressed or enumerated powers only. If the power isn't granted to Congress, they don't have it. Powers withheld are retained by the states or the people from whom all federal powers are derived. As stated in Article 1, Section 1, and further confirmed by emphatic language found in the Tenth Amendment. The fact that it took three-quarters of a century and the exigencies of civil war to inspire Congress to emit bills of, con- bills of credit is a telltale clue that something was amiss in 1862, that they were violating the Constitution, and that a complicit United States Supreme Court was later covering for them in a series of legal tender cases culminating in 1884 with Juliet v. Greenman. Through a progression of orchestrated baby steps, Americans were cunningly weaned from their decentralized system of free enterprise, posited on lawful money, and slowly replaced by a socialist monopoly of centrally planned and regulated bank credit directed from Washington, D.C., Public education, a controlled media, and modern theology were harnessed to ensure our confusion, ignorance, and apathy. As Professor Stuart Crane used to say, it took a long time to make us this dumb. It's no accident. In the controlled environment of public debate, you'll notice that repentance is not an option placed on the table by America's religious, political, or economic leadership. We either follow blind guides into a global dictatorship of the elite, or else we're channeled into the myths from the past, like the so-called gold standard and the so-called gold-backed money. 
the debate is controlled since all parties are using the same absurd economics vocabulary. In today's message, we'll purview the 19th century Lincoln greenbacks through the eyes of Edwin W. Kemmerer, Walker Professor of International Finance at Princeton University, who supplied a chapter about the greenback era in his book, Money, published in 1935. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy, and this is Datamine. segment of Datumline, today's message, Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 16. As mentioned on the front side of our first break, we'll be taking another look at the Lincoln-Greenback period that began in 1862, but this time looking through the eyes of a professor of international finance writing in the year 1935, immediately after his generation's gold was confiscated in 1934 by public servants in Congress acting on behalf of the privately owned Federal Reserve System. Because our present world of 100% credit was given impetus by the Lincoln administration, and because of the high praise accorded to Lincoln greenbacks of that era by so many economic reformers of today, it behooves us to investigate this subject a little bit more thoroughly. Once again, I'll let the author paint a picture of the economic situation just prior to the Lincoln-Greenback debates. He said, quote, The year 1860, in which Abraham Lincoln was elected president of the United States, and at the end of which South Carolina seceded from the Union, was a year of good crops and, until autumn, when a financial crisis occurred, a year of business prosperity. For the national government, the ordinary receipts for the fiscal year 1860 had been $56 million, which, when increased by postal revenues, had left a deficit for the year of $7 million. This had to be bent by borrowing. Of the total ordinary receipts, he said, $53.2 million came from customs duties and the tonnage tax and $1.8 million from the sale of public lands. At the time, the national government had no revenue from income or excise taxes. There was no income tax. Wouldn't that have been a wonderful time to live, huh? The entire interest-bearing national debt on June 30, 1860, according to Professor Kemmerer, was only $65 million, a sum almost exactly equivalent to the national government's ordinary expenditure for that year. The credit of the government, said Kemmerer, was good. End quote. From his book, Money, published in 1935 by Professor Edwin Kemmerer. This found at page 230. <clears throat> I should like to point out that only 25 years earlier, in the year 1835, the national debt had been extinguished altogether under President Andrew Jackson. Here, here. The only debt-free experience in American history. There were $37,000 in bonds that were then outstanding that were never presented for payment. In 1860, said Kemmer, the currency of the country was on a metallic basis. Legally, the standard had been bimetallic since 1792, meaning gold and silver coins. 
Cryptocurrency, he said, at the outbreak of the war consisted chiefly of the following elements. One, gold coin. Two, fractional silver coins. Three, copper cents. And four, notes of state banks. In the autumn of 1861, the amount of specie, gold or silver, in circulation in the loyal states, I think he meant the northern states there, was estimated by the director of the Mint to be somewhere between 255 and $280 million. The banknotes outstanding in the loyal states were estimated at something like $150 million, he said, although the coinage or the production, if you will, of fractional silver was less than $4 million in the calendar year of 1861. So they stamped out $4 million in coin in 1861 in silver. The coinage of gold was $83 million. The largest coinage or production or minting of gold of any year in the history of the mint down to that time. While the importation of foreign coin and bullion according to the director of the Mint, had been, quote, unprecedentedly large, end quote. Banknotes were issued by state banks under widely different laws in the different states, and these notes were a varying degree of goodness. When the Republicans took possession of the government in 1861, all the banks of the country were either chartered or managed by the states. There were approximately 1,600 commercial banks in the country, having in circulation some 7,000 kinds of paper notes. It was also estimated that at this time there were in circulation more than 5,000 varieties of counterfeit notes. End quote from Professor Kemmerer. Turning to page 231 of Kemmerer's book, Money, published in 1935, as I mentioned, he says, quote, as a result of the financial crisis of late 1860, many banks failed and a considerable volume of the country's banknotes accordingly disappeared from circulation, a fact which caused much anxiety. Now I've got to ask my listeners, what causes bankruptcies, bank panics, and bank failures? Answer, bankers and their spurious banknotes. If you want to avoid bankruptcy, avoid banks. Anyway, Kemmerer goes on to say, quote, This gap in the circulation, however, was made up, at least in part, by the issue of Treasury notes by the national government under the Act of July 17, 1861. These notes were payable on demand. Those were called demand notes. But they were not legal tender. You didn't have to take them if you didn't want to. And you could take them at a discount if you wanted to take them at all. Anyway, by October 1861, their circulation amounted to about $33 million. Now, we'll end that quote. Not unlike the recent war in Iraq, the prevailing mood was that the war for secession would be of short duration. This was the opinion of Salmon P. Chase, Lincoln's first Secretary of the Treasury, and seems to have influenced his early decisions to borrow money rather than increase taxes sufficiently to cover the rapidly rising costs of the military campaign. He recommended, quote, that part of the proposed borrowing be made in the form of short-time treasury notes of low denominations and bearing a low rate of interest, end quote. And, according to Professor Kemmerer at page 232, quote, 
Congress approved only part of the Secretary's rather weak tax program, but responded fully to his recommendations for loans, end quote. This, if you remember, seems to corroborate the observations made by Edwin Vieira in Pieces of Eight, Volume One, which we referenced in previous messages. Now, on page 233, Professor Kemmerer notes that, quote, there had already been considerable withdrawal of specie from circulation and from the banks. Now, why would that be? Well, he explains. He says partly because of the declining confidence that'd be the public confidence, resulting from the war. And when there's a war, people tend to get a little bit hedgy, you know, and a little edgy and all that sort of thing, and they, they kind of want to hang on to their money. They don't want to lose it. And partly from the numerous bank failures that took place late in the year 1860. And partly because of the competition of the government's demand notes with specie as bank reserve and media of exchange. Now, there seems to be a little conflict of views here because it wasn't the demand notes that had the legal tender character, yet it was the legal tender imprimator, if you will, that actually brought about those greenbacks being used as bank reserves, just as if they were gold or silver. However, the government's demand notes did compete with uh, other instruments as the media of exchange, or at least the pretended media of exchange. Now, this latter situation brings to mind Gresham's law that bad money drives out good money, particularly when government begins meeting its needs with IOUs and finally resorts to the impress of legal tender to force their acceptance in the economy. <clears throat> Kemmerer went on to say, at the end of December 1861, we're now on page 234 of his book, there was a general suspension of specie payments by the banks of the country and by the government, a suspension that lasted for 17 years, which is 13 years longer than the war which prompted the banks to renege on their promise of note redemption in the first place. <clears throat> uh, this precipitated a crisis that culminated in the issuance of legal tender notes, which saw wholesale prices almost double in just four years. It was noted by Professor Kemmer on page 238 that, quote, legal tender was the subject of vigorous debate, and concerning its advisability, there were wide differences of opinion in Congress, in President Lincoln's cabinet, and among bankers, businessmen, and the general public throughout the country. The question, said Kemmer, of the necessity or of the wisdom of this enactment is one upon which economists and historians still differ. Now, he wrote this in 1935, so over 70 years later, economists and historians were still debating the issue as to whether there was a necessity for Lincoln Greenbacks or whether it was wise to issue them. Well, here we are today, 152 years later, and we're talking about and debating the wisdom and the necessity of violating the Constitution to issue United States notes. Kemmerer went on to say, quote, The most important argument advanced for issuing legal tender notes was the so-called argument of necessity. It usually ran somewhat as follows. The government needed large sums of money for financing the war and needed them promptly. 
it would have taken a long time to create new taxes and organize the administrative machinery for their collection on a sufficient scale to yield the necessary revenues. It was doubtful how far a public suffering from the strains of the war would stand for increased taxation. Ah, there's our music. This is our second break. I'm Bruce C. McCarthy. You're listening to Datham Line. segment of this installment of Datum Line. Today's message, Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 16. One of the strongest opponents of Lincoln Greenbacks was Representative Justin S. Morrill of Vermont, who had said that the bill was, quote, a measure not blessed by one sound precedent and damned by all, end quote. He condemned it as, quote, immoral, and a breach of the public faith. He prophesied that it would raise prices. Well, it did. Within four years, prices were up over 80%. Increase manifold the cost of the war. Well, if prices had gone up almost double in four years, don't you suppose that increased the cost of the war? That it would drive all specie from circulation. <clears throat> well, it did that as well. That it would cripple American labor and at last throw larger wealth into the hands of the rich. I think he was right on all points. He insisted, said Kemmerer, that, quote, there was no necessity calling for such a desperate remedy, end quote. In a speech given on February 19th, 1862, he said that, quote, he did not believe that the patient was in such great danger, this is from page 242 of Kemmerer's book, that the patient was not in such great danger as to justify the calling in of quack doctors and call the measure but quack medicine to relieve a patient that is in no need of any medicine at all. He declared, quote, I believe that if we could stand up here in the vigor of a nation not yet taxed a single dollar for the cost of this war, and mature a proper policy by which we can negotiate a loan standing on the credit of the country, standing upon the proposed taxation of the country, standing on our hitherto untarnished honor, that there could be no need whatsoever of a resort to such a desperate scheme as the one now under consideration, end quote. Funny, you know, most people today will look back and say, gee, how that wasn't desperate, my gosh, why, we love paper money. Uh, no promise, you know, just print lots and lots of it. Why would you people be so concerned? Well, they had a different view of things because they came out of a system that was still using gold and silver. And they knew an economic stability that our generation does not know. Said Representative Roscoe Conkling of New York in a speech to the House on February 4th, 1862, quote, what does this plea of necessity mean? The arguments must be twofold. First, that the people will be better ready at some other time than the present to pay what, in the end, they must pay and pay with interest. And second, that necessary and legitimate taxation will be unpopular and bring denunciation upon those who vote for it. Sir, I take issue upon both propositions. I say the country is rich and ready 
Money is abundant, very abundant. The whole country is full of wealth. We are able to pay now, and we can never pay better than now, end quote. This is from the Congressional Globe, page 633 to page 635. Professor Kemmerer pointed out that non-legal tender demand notes of the United States government and non-legal tender notes of state banks were widely accepted by the public at that time. He said, quote, the public had to have money, this from page 243, and what else could it use now that specie, except on the Pacific coast, had been driven from circulation? Hmm, what drove it from circulation? Well, the legal tender notes were going to help drive it all the way out of circulation. Representative Chris Field from Maryland called attention to the enormous extent of existing debts, national, state, municipal, corporate, and private, and the great volume of our bank deposits all contracted on a gold and silver basis. And now, by this bill, the legal tender bill, made payable in a paper money that was certain to depreciate well, this prophecy of Representative Chrisfield was realized in the case called Bronson versus Rhodes and Hepburn versus Griswold, two cases which came before the United States Supreme Court because of the calamity Congress precipitated with its inflationary and unconstitutional greenbacks. Debtors who had contracted for loans of lawful money from private parties, not banks, private parties, tried to pay them off with highly depreciated greenbacks, which were refused by the creditors. As fate would have it, former Secretary of the Treasury, Salmon P. Chase, was now, in the year 1868, Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. He, with the majority, ruled that legal tender United States notes were unconstitutional, and that the creditor was lawfully entitled to refuse legal tender United States notes and to receive, instead, lawful money. That's quite a commentary on his own administration when he was Secretary of the Treasury under Abraham Lincoln. Said Kemmerer, the question of the constitutionality of the issuance of legal tender notes was frequently discussed in the debate there was no express power, he says, given by the Constitution to the national government either to issue bills of credit or to make bills of credit a legal tender. Well, that's true. There was no express power given, okay, <laughs> because it had been withdrawn. <laughs> the question, he said, of the desirability of giving to the national government the power to issue bills of credit was debated in the Constitutional Convention. Well, that's true as well. And although the power was neither expressly given nor expressly denied. So far he's correct, but now he's going to fall into gross error. He says, quote, The debate left a doubt as to whether or not the framers of the Constitution intended that the national government should possess this power, a power which the Constitution expressly denied to the states. <laughs> End quote. The debate in the Constitutional Convention, left a doubt on a vote of 9 to 2 striking the power to omit bills of credit from the United States Constitution's draft? They left a doubt on a 9 to 2 vote? Heck, not even the Constitution leaves us in doubt. Assuming you know how to read the Federal Constitution, which this professor of international finance evidently 
did not. Because remember, the Constitution at the federal level is one of expressed powers. If the power isn't expressed, then it doesn't exist. Nevertheless, the congressional majority violated their oath of office on the grounds of necessity, reiterated, but never proven. Furthermore, they violated their word to the minority opposition in Congress and to the American people when they issued more greenbacks than they promised to authorize as one emergency measure only. Said Professor Kemmerer, page 244, quote, It was expected and declared by many advocates of the first issue of greenbacks, including Chase himself as Secretary of the Treasury, that this first emergency issue would be the only one. Nevertheless, it was quickly followed, as is usually the case with such issues, by other issues, despite depreciation and despite the protests of the opposition. In June 1862, Chase recommended a second issue of $150 million of greenbacks. The first issue was also $150 million. And that was enacted into law on July 11th of that year. A third issue of $100 million was authorized on January 17, 1863, a sum that was increased to $150 million on May 3rd. Hey, hey, when you can write a law that says the numbers you print on slips of paper must be accepted by everyone else, dollar for dollar, as if they were gold or silver, what's another $50 million? I'll bet if you can create money out of nothing, you wouldn't stop after the first batch of paper and ink ran out. You'd use some of that free money that you just created to get yourself some more paper and some more ink, and you'd play the game again, now wouldn't you? Come on, be honest. Representative Sheffield declared that, quote, it would be far better for the people of the country to sell bonds at a large discount than to further disturb the relations between price and value by a further issue of these notes, end quote. This taken from the Congressional Globe, June 23, 1862, at page 2,888. Now, by the end of the year, Secretary of the Treasury Chase was begging Congress for another round of magic money while admitting the probable consequences. He said, The addition of so vast a volume to the existing circulation would convert a currency of which the benefits have thus far greatly outweighed the inconveniences, into a positive calamity. Its consequences would be inflation of prices, increase of expenditures, augmentation of debt, and ultimately disastrous defeat of the very purposes sought to be attained by it, end quote. This taken from the annual report of the Secretary of the Treasury, December 4, 1862, page 12 and page 13. But you know, he was probably thinking how all of these obstacles could be overcome by simply printing up a few more hundred million dollars in imaginary money. Because he went on to include the following remarks. Quote, to a certain extent, however, and under certain circumstances, a limited additional issue of United States notes may perhaps be safely and advantageously made, end quote. I certainly, a little bit of sin didn't hurt me none. I'll only do it until my conscience really starts to bother me. You know how that goes. Said Kemmerer, by act, 
of June 30, 1864. This now taken from page 246 of his book. The total amount of United States notes issued or to be issued was limited to $400 million. Now remember, the federal government back in 1860, 1861 had operated on a budget of about $63 million. Now we're going to have an issue of $400 million in Lincoln greenbacks. And that's not going to be just spent once, because when those greenbacks come back to the government, they're going to put them back out into circulation. Remember the conveyor belt with the empty bucket, and it's going after that coal and that strip mine. And the empty bucket, the legal tender note, goes out, picks up the coal. The coal is your goods and services, and drags it back to Washington, dumps the goods and services in Washington, where it really belongs, you understand. And then the empty bucket, the legal tender note, goes back out in search of more goods and services. That's what the game's all about. Anyway, the issue is now only going to be limited to $400 million. And an additional temporary issue, oh, I like that word temporary, not to exceed $50 million. The maximum volume of, green, volume of greenbacks actually put into circulation was recorded on June 30. 1864 at approximately $431 million. So much for only one issue of $150 million. But what were some of the other side effects not already mentioned concerning greenbacks? Well, said Kemmerer, when the greenbacks depreciated so far that the fractional silver coins were worth more as bullion than as money, these coins were driven out of circulation. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm going to stop right there in mid-sentence. How does that happen? Let's see if I can explain that. The Legal Tender Act created an artificial environment where $1 on paper, you remember, was said to be, by law, equal to $1 of silver. But the depreciation of those paper dollars pulled the value of coin silver right along with them by dint of a legally fixed ratio of one-to-one set by Congress. Are you following me? To demand a higher value for silver coin than greenbacks would have been a crime. So if somebody offers you greenbacks and you say, no, I don't want those, I want silver, you couldn't do that. Or if somebody had some silver and you said, I'll give you more value for the silver than I will for greenbacks, that was unlawful. That was a crime. You could be punished for that. But if the coins were melted down into bullion and offered as a commodity in the economy, the legal tender ratio no longer applied. As a commodity, silver commanded more greenback dollars than if it was in coin form. So it was more profitable to melt them down into bullion. Thus, silver coins disappeared. You remember one of the opponents, Senator Morrill, had prophesied, I think it was Morrill, that, or it may have been Chrisfield, that when these things go into circulation, they are going to drive specie from circulation. Not only did they drive the gold coins out of circulation, they drove the minor silver coins all the way down to your 10-cent piece or your 5-cent piece, because there were half-dime coins at that time. They even disappeared. Now we're going to go on with Kemmerer. Quote, to meet the resulting need for fractional money, the government issued legal tender fractional notes in denominations less than $1, which were popularly called shin plasters. Finally, 
the depreciation of the greenbacks went so far as to drive out of circulation copper and nickel coins. End quote. This resulted in even lower denomination rags. The lowest denomination note was three cents. The total volume of this entire category of spurious credit instruments was estimated at $15 million. Now, listeners may be interested to know that throughout the entire period, gold continued to circulate as money on the Pacific Coast. On July 11, 1864, it took $2.85 in greenbacks to get a $1 gold coin. This is to say that a greenback dollar was worth only 35 cents in gold. Parity was finally restored in 1878, 13 years after the war ended, but it was not restored because there was 100% redemption. It was restored because public confidence had been obtained on a reserve requirement of only 40% gold. That's a figure we're going to come back to. Now, Remember I said that it took $2.85 in greenbacks to get $1 in gold coin? That was back in July of 1864. Well, about a year ago, I think it was probably around 90 bucks in Federal Reserve credit for $1 of gold. We're in worse condition now than they were then. While greenback advocates then and now might blame gold, silver, and copper even for creating their own scarcity, the problem was rooted in legal tender legislation, used to artificially prop up the value of an ever-increasing supply of irredeemable IOUs, along with the banks which siphon specie and legal tender notes off the street in order to leverage the creation of triple the amount of more fraudulent bank credit which they could lend at interest or use to acquire interest-bearing treasury bonds. Lawful money has been the perpetual scapegoat of bankers in their effort to avoid culpability for fraud and theft perpetrated by spurious credit instruments. Well, this sounds like another break. Uh, you're listening to Datum Line, today's message, Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 16. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy. Back to the final segment of this installment of Datum Line, Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 16. I guess we'll close out by bringing up another consequence that was inflicted upon society by the depreciating greenbacks. Because it's a phenomena we see again today, not with greenbacks per se, but with Federal Reserve notes. It's called extravagance, which accompanied the rapidly depreciating assignats of the French Revolution, you remember, of the 1790s. The belief then, in late 18th century France, and later during the Greenback period, and now, was and is, that if you kept your money, it faded away in your hands. If you loaned it at interest, you would only be repaid in fiat money of even less value. So the natural conclusion was to spend everything you received and spend it quickly. Isn't that the attitude of Americans today? People don't save today. Savings have been at an all-time low. Said Kemmerer, quote, The period in which the greenbacks were depreciating most rapidly was favorable to the philosophy that what you save, you lose, 
and what you spend, you have. Well, why don't you go down to Walmart, take a look on the first day of the month to see the spending spree of Americans today when their government-enriched debit cards have been fully recharged one more time. They say that Chinese widgets are more to be desired than U.S. dollars, another round of which will arrive the same time next month. Some of you may be as old as I and might remember the Kingston Trio, who back in around 1960 sang us a little song, a little line of which went like this. And I don't give a damn about a greenback a dollar. Spend it fast as I can. Yeah. You remember that? Boy, this is quite a program, huh? Gosh, not only is our host an economist of sorts, but he even sings to us and sings these sweet melodies to us on Datamon. Well, speaking of this extravagance of the greenback period, the New York Independent newspaper said, quote, Go into Broadway, and we will show you what is meant by the word extravagance. Ask Stewart about the demand for camel's hair shawls, and he will say, monstrous. Ask Tiffany what kind of diamonds and pearls are called for. He will answer, the prodigious, as near hen's egg size as possible. Price, no object. And as for horses, the medium-priced $500 kind are all out of the market. In other words, they're out of stock. They can't keep up with them. A good pair of fast ones will go for $1,000 sooner than a basket of strawberries will sell for four cents. That from the New York Independent, June 25th, 1864. Well, that's the kind of world in which we're living right now. You see, history does repeat itself. The problem is most of us do not know how to interpret what's right in front of us. In fact, it was Frederick Lewis Allen, an American historian, who said that most, the most difficult task for a historian was to analyze what was taking place right underneath his nose. To look back was one thing. That was easy. But to actually be able to figure out what's going on right now, analyze it, and the reason we can't do that is because history is not taught. Only isolated facts and figures, which are disjointed and have no connection one with another, and the public is not able to deduce what on earth is going on. We are reliving history, just as Solomon said, there is no new thing under the sun. That which has been, will be. Well, this is our last music for the date. And I'm Bruce D. McCarthy. I hope this has been of interest to you. And please join me in our next broadcast, and we'll continue with the Lincoln Greenbacks. Have a good day. So long. smell some funky little things going on let me share this story with you it's not so much a story it's something i wrote years ago read your history people stock markets collapse on friday bank seizures closures holidays take place after business hours on friday do currencies or governments also collapse on friday <laughs> tomorrow's friday 
Will the end come on this Friday or will the inevitable collapse hold off for a while? The next round of the worst financial crisis in a hundred years is coming, people. And the government is out to make you and I pay for it. And will your savings survive a global banking wipeout? What happens when the U.S. sees hyperinflation? What if taxes soar not only for the rich? Can you survive the stock market tanks? Well, between a stock market wipeout, waves of bank failures, soaring government spending that will lead to hyperinflation and the destruction of the dollar's value, isn't it time that you prepare for the uncertainty which lies ahead? Protect your money now or forever kiss it goodbye. My friends, I offer you over six decades experience of hard asset ownership and knowledge. And I'm prepared to handle the smallest detail in the balanced protection of your portfolio. For as the future of uncertainty continues to blanket this nation of ours, I believe that I can offer you the privacy, safety, security, and possibly some profitability which you deserve. And so I invite you to visit SierraMondrePreciousMetals.com for further information regarding protecting your wealth. Or call me, Jeffrey Bennett, at 602-799-8214. Or by email at KettleMoraineLTD at Cox.net for a private consultation. Once again, our phone number is 602-799-8214. It's almost Friday. Are you one of the millions of people who feel like there is a dark cloud hanging over their heads whenever they're using pharmaceutical drugs? For some, the short-term relief can turn into an opioid addiction nightmare. Have you ever wondered why CBD oil is a billion-dollar industry? It's because it works better than opioids and is actually healthy for you. However, CBD oil is stripped of all other helpful compounds found in the hemp plants. According to neuroscientists, the whole hemp plant, otherwise known as hemp paste, is even more effective than the chemically processed CBD oil. Are you ready to take back your health? You can try hemp paste by going to rbnhemppaste.com. That's rbnhemppaste.com. I'm so excited to have you as part of the Wild Pastures family, and we look forward to bringing you the pasture-raised meats that you and your family will love. Now, we started Wild Pastures because so many of my clients would tell me they just couldn't find high-quality pasture-raised meats, and even when they did, it was so expensive that they couldn't afford to eat it regularly. Now, I'm not talking about the bottom-of-the-barrel healthy meats that have claims like natural or free-range or even cage-free, terms that were actually created by the industrial food industry to make us feel all warm and fuzzy about buying their low-quality products. I'm talking about truly nourishing pasture-raised meats, the kind that you'll never really find in a grocery store. Our farmers are doing things beyond organic. Our beef is 100% grass-fed and grass-finished and raised on pastures free from chemicals and other pesticides. Our chickens are 100% pasture-raised, where they get their natural diet of grass and forage and insects. We will never settle for free-raised which is actually one of the most deceptive terms 
the chicken industry. In fact, less than 0.1% of the chicken consumed in the United States is truly pasture-raised in the way that ours is. And our pork is 100% pasture-raised as well. So if you care about where your food comes from, then you have definitely made it to the right place. As a Wild Pastures member, you'll be supporting the most highly principled farmers in America and getting the most nutrient-dense, nourishing, and sustainable meats in the world. I'm confident you'll love being part of our mission at Wild Pastures, and you will really love the delicious, nourishing meats that we're going to deliver straight to your door. Visit republicbroadcasting.org and click the Wild Pastures banner ad. Secure a shipment today. Beef, poultry, and pork. Raised the way nature intended. Tahibo Tea Club's original Pure Pouty Arco Super Tea comes from the only tree in the world that fungus does not grow on. As a result, it naturally has antifungal, anti-infection, antiviral, antibacterial, anti-inflammation, and anti-parasite properties. So the tea is great for healthy people because it helps build the immune system, and it can truly be miraculous for someone fighting a potentially life-threatening disease due to an infection, diabetes, or cancer. The tea is also organic and naturally caffeine-free. A one-pound package of tea is $49.95, which includes shipping. To order, please visit drinksupertea.com. The first word is drink, spelled D-R-I-N-K, then the word super, then the word tea. The complete website is drinksupertea.com. Or call us at 818-965-9113, Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. California time. That's 818-965-9113, drinksupertea.com. My name is John, I'm the founder of Blackout Coffee, and I started uh, Blackout because I really love coffee. I've always loved coffee, and after traveling so much to Europe, South America, in trying so many different coffees that were so good, and uh, every time I came back, uh, to the U.S., I was so disappointed with the coffee, so I figured that I had to do something about it. The biggest difference is really is on the beans and the roasting process, how we roast it, and how fresh it is. The fresher the roast, the better the quality. Here I have like all, all of the coffee that's roasted within one to two days prior to being shipped. So it literally gets to consumers' house within three to five days after being roasted. If you like coffee, you have to try ours. It's fresh roasted. It's one of the best beans that we can get. And you will definitely see the difference. Visit blackoutcoffee.com and use the coupon code REPUB10. That's REPUB10. Corporate media dominates the American opinion. Finding independent voices that counter this avalanche is becoming increasingly difficult. With the endless corruption running rampant throughout our government, independent voices are needed more than ever to battle the offensive against our freedoms and liberties. As a listener of RBN, no one understands this concept better than you. Now it's up to you to do your part. The time has come for you to take action and begin broadcasting the truth to hundreds or thousands of people every month. Sound impossible? Quite the contrary. With pointed slogans from LibertyStickers.com, you can reach countless sleeping Americans unaware that they live in a real-life wonderland. LibertyStickers.com has a huge inventory of political bumper stickers and messages that reflect the truth about our government, our politicians, and the future of America. With so many in stock, there's one perfect for you. Visit us today at LibertyStickers.com. Again, that's LibertyStickers.com. Do your part. Your voice is important. Let it be heard. 
Hey there, are you going to wait till the cows come home to get your new Ease-Off drop and lift? What in the world is an Ease-Off drop and lift? Our Ease-Off is a new tool to increase production for your meat processing company that will get that whole hog or half a beef on or off your rail with our remote control. That sounds great, but can I afford it? Sure, and the Ease-Off installs fast. The effortless operation will reduce fatigue, speed up your line, and increase profits. Okay, I'm convinced. Where can I get my Ease-Off? Go to EaseOff.com. That's E-A-Z-E-O-F-F.com. And hurry, because we're offering free shipping for a limited time. EaseOff.com. We make pigs fly. Cows, too. EaseOff, LLC, 417-932-6419. Homeowners, are you in foreclosure, expecting to be served with a foreclosure lawsuit, or suspect your lender has coerced you into an illegal mortgage transaction? A huge number of mortgages made in the last 10 years have legal issues and are possibly defective. State laws and the U.S. Supreme Court have upheld that defective mortgage documents are grounds for foreclosure defense and for counterclaims in favor of the homeowner. If your mortgage has been sold or assigned since closing the loan, it may be defective and you may be paying the wrong party and the lender may not have standing or the right to foreclose or collect payments under the law. If you would like to know if your mortgage is legal or not, or know if you are paying the right party, we can help. Our initial consultations are free of charge. We are not attorneys. We are legal researchers and work closely with experienced lawyers who know how to help you find the evidence to help you keep your home. Call toll-free 1-855-2-KEEP-IT. That's 1-855-2-KEEP-IT today. Do you or someone you know suffer from chest pain, blood pressure, cholesterol, or irregular heartbeat? Are you looking for a more natural solution to overcome these health challenges? You hear the ads all the time. If this stuff's so good, why doesn't my doctor prescribe it? That's easy. Doctors are not trained in natural medicine. Extendivite Heart Tonic does want you to be as healthy as you can be, and it really works. Take Extendivite for six months and your doctor will say, I don't know what you're doing, but don't stop. It's working for you. Get the dependability of Extendivite. Just see how you feel in six months. A two-month supply of either capsules or liquid is only $69.95 plus shipping and handling. Call 1-877-928-8822. That's 1-877-928-8822. Or visit heartdrop.com. Extend your life with Extend Hello, hello, hello from beautiful Colorado. My name is Samuel Jung Kay, and I am currently the lead Shilajee hunter and master herbalist for Colorado Shilajee Company. In this video series, I will be discussing what we believe is the greatest of all adaptogenic superfoods and the single greatest natural healing remedy gifted to us by Mother Earth. I think you too will become as excited by this incredible substance called Shilajee as we were and are after our discovery of this amazing gift right here in beautiful, colorful Colorado. You may already know Shilajee by other names. Shilajit, Momio, Momi, Mami, Mineral Pitch, Asphaltum, and others. Shiloji literally translates to destroyer of weakness and conqueror of mountains. Shiloji has been used for thousands of years and is considered as the highest valued cure-all of any earthly substance. Look for the gold mountain and medical symbol logo in banners on republicbroadcasting.org to watch the full video and see more information. Use code GORBN when ordering. That's G-O-R-B-N. 
The secret to aging like fine wine is in the vines. Syrah grape seeds and skins contain high levels of flavonoids and resveratrol. Fermentation breaks these organic compounds down into smaller molecules, penetrating these therapeutic ingredients deeper into the skin, delivering faster and more effective results. Our handmade fermented skincare products are formulated with all natural ingredients and do not contain any phthalates or parabens. Similar products can cost as much as $180. At Natural Earth Medicine, we source our ingredients from local Arizona vineyards and cold process our oils to ensure that our customers receive the highest quality product in its purest form. Learn more at our website and try our fermented skincare products today. Visit naturalearthmedicine.com. That's naturalearthmedicine.com. Kilad Atzman says the essence of Jewish power is the ability to prevent the discussion of Jewish power. Jewish power requires anybody in politics to understand it and know about it, but never talk about it. My awakening really sums up with the very best evidence, the facts and the truth about race, and the fact that race drives history, and the truth about the Jewish question. The younger you get, the greater the percentage of people who identify as alphabet soup, you know, LGBTQ, RS. This woman, she's like, oh yeah, I identify as a koala two years ago, and I'm like, what? A koala? What? Maybe if it was quickie koala, that might be cool, but otherwise, you know. How about an inward pass? Have you ever received an inward pass from any of your black friends? Biden invited a drag queen to come for the signing of the Respect for Marriage Act. It's the Respect for Anal Sex Act. So, you know, I mean, let's, let's just call it like it is. The Patrick and Jeremy Show, Tuesday at 9 Central and Wednesday at 1 Central. Consider this. Dead people see only what they want to see. And frankly, most of us are still dead. Let me give you the lessons of gold and five easy lessons. Number one, don't buy it because you need to make money. You buy gold because you need to protect the money you already have. Don't ever look at the price as a barrier. Look at it as an incentive. Number three, don't buy its paper pretenders. We talked about that a lot. Buy gold. Buy the real thing in the form of coins and bullion. Fourth, don't fall prey to glitzy television or Facebook ads. Do your due diligence instead. And that's what I try to provide you with and have for 26 and a half years on the air and 30 years in this profession. Fifth, don't allow naysayers to divert your interest. Allow yourself the right to protect your interests as you see fit. Jeff Bennett here. One of the ways you can do that is to contact Kettle Moraine Limited. Contact me by calling or texting me at 602-799-8214. 602-799-8214. You can also email me at kettlemoraineltd at cox.net. Let me help you protect your wealth and your family today. Once again, call or text us at 602-799-8214 or visit our website, sierramadrepreciousmetals.com. Be glad to help you out. Be glad to answer your questions. That's what we're here for. No pressure. Just good, hard, common sense. The decision then becomes up to you. 
I'm so excited to have you as part of the Wild Pastures family, and we look forward to bringing you the pasture-raised meats that you and your family will love. Now, we started Wild Pastures because so many of my clients would tell me they just couldn't find high-quality pasture-raised meats, and even when they did, it was so expensive that they couldn't afford to eat it regularly. Now, I'm not talking about the bottom-of-the-barrel healthy meats that have claims like natural or free-range or even cage-free, terms that were actually created by the industrial food industry to make us feel all warm and fuzzy about buying their low-quality products. I'm talking about truly nourishing pasteurized meats, the kind that you'll never really find in a grocery store. Our farmers are doing things beyond organic. Our beef is 100% grass-fed and grass-finished and raised on pastures free from chemicals and other pesticides. Our chickens are 100% pasture-raised, where they get their natural diet of grass and forage and insects. We will never settle for free range, which is actually one of the most deceptive terms in the chicken industry. In fact, less than 0.1% of the chicken consumed in the United States is truly pasture-raised in the way that ours is. And our pork is 100% pasture-raised as well. So if you care about where your food comes from, then you have definitely made it to the right place. As a Wild Pastures member, you'll be supporting the most highly principled farmers in America and getting the most nutrient-dense, nourishing, and sustainable meats in the world. I'm confident you'll love being part of our mission at Wild Pastures, and you will really love the delicious, nourishing meats that we're going to deliver straight to your door. Visit republicbroadcasting.org and click the Wild Pastures banner ad. Secure a shipment today. Beef, poultry, and pork. Raised the way nature intended. <laughs>